All right, so let's begin. Let's begin. Remember your name. Let's begin with a word of prayer. Huh? What's your name? Okay. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this great privilege, this great joy to study your word. We pray that um, that as we study this doctrine of predestination, um, that it would not be speculation, it would not be our own thoughts, but rather that we would want to think our thoughts after you, um, that we're drawing this from Scripture. And if it's in Scripture, we know that it's for our joy. Um, it's for our uh, ultimate <coughs> happiness in Christ. It's, it's to the praise and to the glory of your name. And so whatever is not true today, let it be forgotten, let it fall to the wayside. But whatever is true, whatever is of lasting value, I pray that it would go into our hearts. It would nourish us, it would encourage us, it would uh, fill us with wonder at who you are. We pray this Christ's name. Amen. Amen. All right, so um, last week... Uh, uh, the way I designed this class is that if you only attend one, you should be okay. Because <laughs> uh, every week I'm going to sort of review just the basic doctrine, and then we're going to go into the objections. And of course, every week will be new objections. But actually, you'll see that a lot of the objections are all, a, a lot of them are interconnected, right? Um, there's sort of, vari- uh, 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 sort of variations on the same core objection. But so what is predestination? And... The answer is, we saw this last week, that in our salvation, God must make the first move. So let me just write that down. Predestination simply tells us that God makes the first move. Why? Because we saw this last week, right? Our hearts are dead. Right? Our hearts are cold. And therefore, um, the only way that we can believe in Christ, the only way we can accept the gospel, love God, is that God takes out our heart of stone and gives us a heart of flesh. And that is a supernatural work. We can't do that to ourselves. God must do that, and therefore it depends on God's initiative, right? And therefore it is ultimately God who decides our salvation, not us. And if I could sort of graphically draw this out, um, let me use... Salvation requires a heart transformation, right? Heart of stone uh, to a heart of flesh, and then that leads. Right, so this precedes. To faith, right? So our faith responds to God's first act. Does that make sense? And if we want to put this in sort of uh, technical theological terms, this is what we would call regeneration. Right? God's uh, making our heart alive. So in theology, we say that the regeneration precedes faith, not the other way around. It's not that we have faith, and then God responds by awakening our hearts or vivifying, giving uh, life to our hearts, Right? Um, and this scheme, right, that heart transformation precedes faith, means that it is God who decides. It is God who elects, not us. Our response is, our faith is a response to faith, right? So where do we see that in Scripture? All over. As I said last week, um, and, and in every week we're going to look at some passages that show us predestination. Every week will be different. I can spend every week... We'll just go through multiple passages because it's in every book of the Bible. It is in every page of the Bible. Um, so let's read some of the more uh, explicit, clear ones. First John, can I have David read this? First <clears throat> uh, John four nineteen. We love because he first loved us. Right. Notice it doesn't say God loves us because first we loved him. We come to love. We come to love God, and God says, "Oh, I love you too." It isn't also, we both love each other at the same time, right? There's actually a, a sort of a compromised position between, you know, the, the idea of predestination versus the idea of we choosing God. Say, so, well, maybe it's like that double-blind dating app where you each see each other's profile, and you don't know the answer of the other person, and then you choose yes or no. So God sees our profile, we see God's profile, and then... God somehow, you know, masks all knowledge, if that's even possible for God, 
and then we choose each other at the same time. It doesn't say that. What does it say? It says that, why do we love? Our love is a responsive love, only because God first loved us. Right? John 15, where are we? Carlos, can you read that for us? You do not choose me, but I chose you. Yes! It's very explicit, very clear. Um, Jay, can I have you read John 16? Uh, John 6. Yeah, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. Yes. Now, how can we come to the Father unless the Father draws us? That's heart transformation. He takes out our heart of stone, gives us a heart of flesh, he draws us, and then we can come to Christ. Right? Notice the order, right? We, it's not that um, uh, we come to Christ and then the Father draws us. Or that the Father is drawing us as we come to Christ. It's only because the Father is drawing us, okay? Um, and therefore, it depends on the sovereign mercy of God, not on our initiative or, or on our faith. Uh, John 10, where are we? Uh, Kevin. You do not believe because you are not my sheep. The order is very significant here. It's not that um, you are not my sheep because you do not believe. It's you do not believe because you are not my sheep. In other words, what is decisive? It's not faith. It's not belief that's decisive. It's sheepness that's decisive, right? Your status as sheep, right? So only sheep believe. Non-sheep do not believe. Does that make sense? And so ultimately what matters is whether you're God's sheep or not. Not your belief. Your belief, again, is a secondary effect. Your belief is an echo of what God is doing first which is he chose you as a sheep, right? There's sheep and there's goats. And if you understand this, this also excludes the idea that God um, gives his saving grace to all people, right? That he takes out a heart of stone and gives us a heart of flesh to all people. Because if, if that were the case, then we should all believe, but only some believe. So what's the distinction between why some believe and some don't believe? It's not our intelligence. It's not our spiritual insight. It's not that we're better or more moral or more spiritually sensitive than other people. It is only one factor, which is God's sovereign grace. God opened my eyes. Like somebody says to you, how come you believe? Because God had mercy on me. Because God opened my eyes. Um, I, used to, uh, uh, I used to have this friend who would always say to me, I wish I had your faith. I wish I had your gift of faith. As if faith was some sort of mustering ability. And I would say... Um, you're looking at it the wrong way. It's not that I have this advantage over you that I can believe, but my belief is really a response to God's mercy. And so the question is, you need to see God's mercy. Um, any questions before we move on then to the first objection? Yes, John. So is there a difference uh, in this um, the, the way we see this, um, like um, after Jesus and before Jesus, in the sense of no, um, is the um, Old Testament people were they also chosen? Yes, they're not chosen. So it, it, the, the, the only difference between the Old and New Testament with respect to election is that the Old Testament is anticipating Christ. It speaks of Christ in, sh- in types and shadows, and in the New Testament we have Him in the reality. Constantly, the Old Testament. Messiah is coming in the New Testament. The Messiah is here. So then, how about those people who died, like on the forty-day trip? Mm-hmm. Uh, like, how, how about the people who, who he killed off because I think he's from like their lack of faith or something? Or? Right. Lack of faith is always because God sovereignly chose not to give them a heart transformation. So it's a matter of God's sovereign decisions. God's sovereign. Right. So let's go on to the first objection. Uh, the first objection is, um, which is a repeat of last week's, but uh, you'll see how it connects to the, the, the true new objection. If God determines all things, how can we be free? And the answer I gave last week was, well, it depends on what you mean by free. And I said that there's two kinds of, of, um, of wills, right? We have a natural will, and we have a moral will. Right? And our natural will is the ability to do whatever we want to do. And God never violates that. We are not robots. We are not marionette puppets. Okay? Uh, but, do we have a free, unencumbered moral will? And the answer is no. Because our will is bound to our nature, and our nature is sin because of our, uh, of our first parent, Adam. 
right? All humanity has fallen. Therefore, we are slaves of sin, as Jesus says. We are dead to dead because of sin, as Paul says. Um, and so, are we free to choose God? No. We are all bound. And therefore, it, again, requires heart transformation, which is a work of God, right? If it's a work of God, then, a, then, then we don't have a free choice, right? It depends on God. But, uh, predestination does not violate our freedom in the sense that uh, we're being forced to do something we don't want to do. Does that make sense? So, uh, does it violate our freedom? Yes and no. Yes, in the sense that um, um, we're not really free. We can't choose. But no, in the sense that we're not being compelled. Um, we're not being forced like robots. Then, it naturally leads to the next question, which is, how can God blame us if we choose sin, since we're predetermined, right? So here, we're going to get a little bit philosophical, right? If the doctrine of predestination is true, that before the beginning of time, before you we were even made, before you we were created, before you we were conceived, if, if our whole life is already pre-written, right? Um, if every action, every minute of our life is already scripted out in the mind of God, how can we be blamed if we do something evil? If we do some some sin, and then if we can we can go even back further and say, okay, you know, we don't have free moral will, but who had a free moral will? Adam. So Adam in the garden had a free choice. He could have chosen the good and the right, but he did not. But isn't that within the sovereign will of God? Isn't that within the? Uh, uh, um, didn't God ordain that? And the answer is yes. And therefore, how can Adam and all humanity included in Adam? How can Adam be blamed for taking the forbidden fruit when it was within God's um, God's will? The answer is uh, double agency, or dual agency. So let me just write this down because it's going to be um, it's going to be a little bit hard to understand. All right, so. This is a paradox, okay? So when I explain it to you, you're going to say no. <laughs> um, but let me just say this to set this up. Paradox, Christianity at its heart is paradox. There's paradoxes all over Christianity. If you don't like paradox, you cannot be a Christian, right? Um, for example, Jesus is fully human and he's fully divine. Okay, so let me try to uh, tease out the paradox there. Jesus is fully finite and limited, and he's fully infinite and unlimited. How can you be unlimited and limited simultaneously at the same time? You cannot explain it. It is a paradox. It's a mystery. Or God is a community. He's three, and simultaneously he is one. Unity. How can he be community and unity at the same time? We don't know. We don't understand how God's threeness and his oneness work together. But it's a mystery, it's a paradox. We must accept it. We must hold them in tension, so to speak. Similarly, God is in control. So a double agency means there's two agents in any action. There's God, and then there's us. Right? And if you try to resolve this paradox, just like if you try to resolve any other paradox in Scripture, um, you're going to run into... Um, you're going to run against the grain of scripture. So, in any action, there's two agents. God is the agent, and we are the agent, okay? And so, therefore, God is completely in control. Nothing happens to which God says, Oh, no! <laughs> this, that wasn't my plan! Um, everything is under control. Everything is, is, is under His divine, sovereign will. And... We're responsible for everything that we do. Everything that we do, it's on us. We make the choice. We decide. We're culpable. We're responsible. All right. How can that possibly be? Right? How can those two things be simultaneously true? We see it all over. We do, there's no explanation, but we see it all over Scripture. Right? So Genesis 50. Uh, Linda, can you read that for us? As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. To bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. Yes. Now, notice um, something, uh, an evil thing is described, right? Selling Joseph. 
right? Now, uh, Joseph says, you sold me into slavery. He says, that's evil. So here we have two agents. The brothers, what they did was evil, right? The brothers can't say, why do you blame us? We were predestined by God. How can you... We have to sell you into slavery. No, right? They're responsible. They're held liable. They're guilty. And yet Joseph says, that same thing that happened to me, selling Joseph into slavery, God meant it for good. So there's two agents, right? Um, And why did God... uh, How did God mean it for good? How did God ordain that? Not only to save Joseph, not only to save his family from this famine, but ultimately leading to Christ, right? His saving purposes. So the brothers meant it for evil, God meant it for good. Um, We see another example. Uh, Can I have a Julie? Read Exodus. But when Pharaoh saw that there was a respite, he hardened his heart and would not listen to them, as the Lord had said. Yeah, so notice uh, in dealing with the Exodus story, Pharaoh says, "Mm -mm, I'm not going to let the people go. And who is responsible for that? He is. He says, I'm going to do it. (laughs) <laughs> I, I don't I don't want I, he hardened his own heart right but then there's a second agent but the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh and he did not listen to them as the Lord had spoken to Moses so who hardened Pharaoh's heart the answer there were two agents God hardened Pharaoh's heart Pharaoh hardened Pharaoh's heart well which one what's the real who's the real mover here <laughs> the answer is it's both right um, how can it be both it's a mystery I cannot explain it. <laughs> um, Deuteronomy 29, 29 says, The secret things belong to God. The revealed things belong to us. And as I think about this, right, maybe if God even tried to explain it, we couldn't understand. Right? Um, could we understand dual agency, double agency? And I sort of think of it like this. Imagine that there's a two-dimensional character. Right? There's, two, there's, there, there's a two-dimensional character there's two two-dimensional two characters, and we are three-dimensional characters. And if we tell this two-dimensional character, did you know that you could both line up so that I can only see one of you, but you're both but you're both in separate spaces, but I'll only be able to see one, and you're sort of superimposed on each other. And then the two-dimensional person will say, that is impossible. How can that be? He can climb over me, he can dig under me, but he cannot... He cannot be superimposed on me. That's impossible. But we as a three-dimensional creature knows there's another dimension in which you can arrange them like this. Right? Now, we, being limited human beings, how can we understand the mind of God who is not just multidimensional, he's infinitely dimensional. And so, I think that's sort of like my grasping attempt to explain dual agency, double agency. It's possible in the mind of God, but for us, it's, it's a paradox. Here's another analogy. I don't know if that will help you, right? Um, imagine you're reading a novel, right? And it's a gripping story, right? And you read about this villainous character. And he's plotting evil things. And you're so angry. You're boiling mad at this character. And you say, ah, I know the author wrote this character, so I'm really mad at the author. No. You're mad at the character. And even though, even though the story has already been written out, even though it's already predetermined, so to speak, as the villainous character does his villainous deeds, each time you're like, oh, that's terrible, that's evil, that's mad. I mean, that's bad. And so you're mad. You're, you hold the character responsible. And yet, simultaneously, you know, the author has written the story. Now, that analogy falls apart because God is greater than any human author and we are more real than any fictional character, but that hopefully helps you to begin to understand things. Yes. I have a question going back to the um, uh, picture of Adam having three more. Well, did God know Adam was going to eat the Of mother? course. Okay. Not only did he know, he ordained it. Okay. If you ordained it, then how can Adam be held responsible? <laughs> double agency. How can double agency be? You're a two dimensional creature. Can explain to you how two people can be two composed. <laughs> okay. Um, here's why double agency is very important. Because if you try to resolve the conflict, you run into problems. If God is the only agent, then we're robots. We have no freedom. 
if we are the only agents and God is not involved, then yes, we have freedom. We're responsible, right? God is not at fault. God can't blame us. But then we run into a huge problem, which is everything depends on us. What a scary world that would be. If everything depends on us and God is not in control, then you should panic because you're in the driver's seat. But double agency says what? You are, you are free. Everything you do is on you. But God is ultimately in control. How does that work out? I don't know. You know what that means? This is a great comforting thing. You can make no mistakes. You can make a mistake, yes, in the sense that you'll do something stupid and bad and evil and wrong. But that's all within God's loving plans and purposes. Okay. Um, so can God still blame us? The answer is yes. It's less comforting when you think that the mistakes still have consequences, right? Of course, yeah. But even the consequences <laughs> is from the hand of your loving Father. But it could separate you from Him. Uh, what do you mean? Like an eternity. Um, if you're His child, no. But um, um, can your evil decisions separate you from Him for all eternity? Yes. But then it depends. In, it, we're talking about it earlier. It depends on whether you're a sheep or not. So if you're not a sheep, then yes, your decisions are on you, and your decisions will ultimately lead you to an eternity of separation from him. But if you're his sheep, if you're his son, then no, you cannot, because it's not on you ultimately, even though you're still responsible. I don't know if that makes sense. Do you have a question, Sarah? I have lots. <laughs> <laughs> but my, my it, the, the one that comes to mind is, how can you, um, so you're talking about the paradox of double agency. And so it, it kind of brings to like how can, <coughs> and we don't understand everything because we're two-dimensional people, mm-hmm. so is there a way that predestination and free will blend together more closely than we can un- can possibly understand, that only God can understand in a way that, um, like I'm just trying to think, like this is a small argument within predestination, but can it apply to predestination itself and then back to baptism and all these other issues Mm -hmm. that there's like a paradox that we just can't understand that God does. Right, so we have to be very careful to delineate, to to define the borders of what is a paradox and what is not. God is not saying, I don't know who's ultimately responsible for your salvation. That's a paradox. He doesn't say that. Because he clearly says, we love because he first loved us. So he gives us the order. Chronology is very clear. Mm-hmm. Our salvation is completely dependent on God's first initiatory sovereign mercy, not on us. It's not on us. He is the author of our salvation because he's the first mover. That's clear. But now, in light of the fact that God is the first mover, how can we be held responsible for anything that we do? That part is a paradox. I don't know if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Um, um, when people, a lot of times people say, what about free will in response to predestination? And the answer is, of course, what do you mean by free will? Mm-hmm. If you mean by free will that we are human beings, that we could do what we want to do, and that we are held responsible for what we want to do, absolutely. Free will is true. How can free will be held in constant with predestination? Paradox. But if you mean by free will that we, um, the, our moral will is unencumbered, that we can freely, without God's heart transformation, regeneration in our hearts, that we can freely choose faith or not faith, then the answer is no. There is no free will in that sense. So are the denominations within the Christian faith that do preach? Yeah, so for example, we're in the PCA. This is the Presbyterians. Presbyterians is uh, is a Calvinistic, predestinarian denomination. Explicitly, it's in our confessions. There's the Methodists. They're explicitly um, Arminian. They explicitly reject predestination. Um, a lot of denominations leave it up in the air. For example, the, the, the biggest denomination in America, which would be the Southern Baptist Convention, SBC. Um, I think 18 million people. I don't know how that could possibly be. That's an enormous denomination. PCA, by comparison, is 400,000. But uh, the SBC uh, leaves it, leaves it um, up in the air. You can, you can do either or. And then they fight over it. Fight. <laughs> <laughs> um, any other questions? Are there any, oh, sorry. Are there any, like, uh, parables that Jesus spoke about regarding the predestination? Oh. Um, you know, I can't think of any on, off the top of my head. Um, perhaps. That's a good question. Mm-hmm. I, I have not thought of it. Sean? Okay.
Okay, so to get into more hypothetical questions. Sure. When Jesus comes down for the second coming, do we regain more moral free will? Yes. Well, no. Um, <laughs> like, what do you mean, right? Like, are we back where Adam is? Yeah. No. Because Adam had the ability to sin, to rebel. But uh, we will not have that ability. We will have a nature like Christ, which is he was free to obey, but he was not free to disobey. Right now, we don't have the freedom to obey. Well, even that is not a correct answer. It's true, but not yet true. Not fully true, right? In Christ, that moral will has been restored, but it's corrupted, weak, and broken. Right? And it's very weak. And this is why we continually fall back into sin. But when we, right, when, like, you know, First uh, John says, when we, see, when we see Jesus, we will be like him, right? Um, so in that sense, we, we will have a fully restored moral will. Let me move on. Next objection. Wait, doesn't this make God the author of sin? All right, so this is also going to cook your noodles, so let me... All right. Um, so, oh, I shouldn't have deleted this, but if, if it was the case that, that the brothers sold Joseph into slavery, isn't behind uh, uh, Joseph God? Isn't God ordaining and decreeing what the brothers do? And therefore, isn't God using evil means to fulfill his good purposes? Right? And if that's the case, then God is the author of evil. God, If God ordains that the, jo- the brothers sell Joseph into slavery, that evil is selling Joseph into slavery, that's on God. Is it not? Isn't he the author? Isn't he the creator of sin and evil? Or let's go back to Adam and Eve, right? If it was God's will that Adam partake of the forbidden fruit. In fact, if he ordained it, then isn't God... Like, where did evil come from? If all there was was God, and then all there was was what God created, where did evil come out of? And uh, this is going to be very truly difficult. The answer is God is not the author and creator of evil. It's a paradox. Um, So let me write this down. Okay, so God ordains Okay. I have to be very technical. Ordains, or you could you could use another word, decrees sin, evil, but he does not um, create or author sin. Does that make sense? Okay, what is decree or ordain? These are just kind of fancy words that means to command, right? Now, what is the difference between ordains and decrees evil versus create or author evil? The answer, okay, is not going to be very satisfying, is I don't know. They're just words that we use to, dis- to differentiate what God is doing. Because did God, did evil come out of God? He did not create it. He did not make it. It did not arise from him. And yet, he commanded evil to be. He decreed it. He ordained it. Well, aren't you just using language to sort of like not get God into this business? And the answer is yes. <laughs> it's sort of like the Trinity, right? If you, if you understand the doctrine of the Trinity... God is one in being, three in persons. What's the difference between a, birth, a, a being and a person? I don't know. But we use those two different terms. We don't say God is one person, three beings. Because that would be heresy. How is that heresy? Well, because we attach the word being to the oneness and persons to the threeness. Right? That's the answer. So, we don't know how this works. So, we're just using language to help differentiate it. But the core reality of it is imperceptible or unpenetrable by our minds. Alright, so let me say this again. God ordains evil. It was, he decreed it. He, he, he willed it into being. It came from God in the sense that, that nothing happens without God being in control, and yet, he is not responsible for the evil. He's not culpable. He didn't author it, he didn't create it. 
Alright, now, uh, a lot of people still scratch their heads. And so one explanation that people give is um, there's a difference between, if we just take this word decree or even ordain, um, <clears throat> there's a difference between his active decree and his permissive decree. <clears throat> What's the difference between the active and permissive decree? Intentionality. What God actively decrees, he intends. What God permissively decrees, he does not intend. Um, okay, where do we see that in scripture? Actually, we see it quite a bit. Um, Psalm 81 is a good passage. Ashley, can you read that? I am the Lord your God who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. Open your mouth wide, and I will fill it. But my people did not listen to my voice. Israel would not submit to me. So I gave them over to their stubborn hearts to follow their own counsels. Oh, that my people would listen to me, that Israel would walk in my ways. Yes, I like how you read the last verse. Oh, how my people would listen to me. So God is wringing his hands. Oh, that my people would listen to me. And yet we know the very reason in verse 12. It's because God gave them over to their stubborn hearts. If you remember Romans chapter 1, it's very similar language, right? It doesn't say that God gave them stubborn hearts or evil hearts, but God gave them over to their stubborn hearts, meaning what was already there. Okay? So he permissively allowed his people to not listen to him. He didn't actively put it in there. So... Is that different from Pharaoh? Um... When, God, when it says God hardened Pharaoh's heart, um, that was a permissive decree, not an active decree, in the sense that um, it was a decree. So we're running into language issues again, right? But we're trying to grasp it. How did God harden? How did, when we say God hardened, God decreed that Pharaoh's heart was hardened. But we can tease it out even the decree and say there's a permissive and there's an active. So did God, so was it that Pharaoh says, you know, I'm indifferent to whether I should be hardened or not. Um, and maybe I'm leaning towards letting my people go. And then God says, no, I cannot let that be. So I'm going to put in you an evil heart. Um, he would say no. Um, but then it was God's will. It was God's ordination. He commanded, because he is the commander of all things, that Pharaoh should be hardened. I don't know if that, make, if that satisfies you. It's a paradox, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> um, so here's an analogy, okay? And uh, and uh, always analogies, when you try to come up with an analogy to explain a paradox, you're running into danger, right? Um, this is why when I was in seminary, they never gave me any analogies or illustrations. They would just give me the doctrine, because that's safe. <laughs> but I'm a wild and crazy person. I'm going to give you an analogy, all right? So suppose <laughs> there's a difference between pushing somebody so that they fall, and then letting somebody fall. So imagine uh, you see somebody and they're running, and they're about to fall. You can see that they're going to trip. Now you're right there, so you could stop them. But you, cho you choose not to stop them. So they fall. Now, are you responsible for their fall? Did you author it? Did you create the fall? No. But was it your will that they fall? <coughs> yes. Because you could have stopped them. Right? I think even that analogy is not precise, not 100% helpful, because the person tripping and falling, it's not really their fault. It was an accident. So let's give me, let me give another analogy. Suppose you have a friend who tells you, I'm taking this important test, I'm going to cheat. And you say, oh, you shouldn't cheat, not good. And he says, I don't care, I'm going to cheat. Now, you could say, well, I'm going to go tell the teacher. <laughs> or I'm going to sit right next to you and you know, jam you and nudge you and prevent you from doing it. But instead, you, you say, don't cheat, don't cheat, don't cheat. But in the end, you don't do an extreme action. Are you responsible for his cheating? No, he, he's the one who's cheating. In fact, you said don't cheat. But was it your will that he would cheat? Yes, because you could have prevented it. Right? All of these analogies fall apart because we're trying to penetrate the mind of God. Um... So the answer, here's the answer, right? 
God knew the evil in our hearts, but, but by his own choice, because of his own sovereign will, he let it happen. And therefore, is God the author of sin? No, but we are responsible. This is why in Romans 9, we have that analogy that Paul gives us. Paul says, can the clay say to the potter, How, why did you make me so? And Paul says, no. The clay has no right to say that. Why? Because, because again, this difference. Like God, he didn't create or author the evil. Um, it's truly our decision. Any questions? Yes, Sean. Does the Bible explicitly state that Satan is creator of evil, or does the Bible just attach Satan to... Where does Satan come from? That's, so that doesn't solve our problem. <laughs> um, actually, there's a verse that I've been struggling with for a while. It's Isaiah 45, 7. It says, I make peace and create evil. I, the Lord, do all these things. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm sure you thought about it. Is it, again, back to the scenario? Yeah, so the word make evil, right? What does the word make mean? And here we're trying to use language to tease out the difference. Um, God ordains and decrees evil. That sounds really, like, loaded. So people don't usually say that. But that's the truth. Scripture says that all the time. God ordains and decrees evil. But did he create and did he author evil? Did he Is he responsible for evil? Did it arise from his character? Did he plot evil? Did he want the evil? All those answers are no. I don't know if that makes sense. But he creates Satan. He's a fallen angel. Certainly he created Satan, but did he create Satan's rebellion? I would say he ordained Satan's rebellion. He decreed Satan's rebellion. You will say to me, Oh, but Michael, you're playing language games. Did I mean how did he not create Satan's? I don't know the difference between these two words. Does the paradox with the language thing still exist with the original language? Because you know, to not not not. The Bible is less precise than we're trying to be. So, like Ezra says, make isn't make create? Yeah. So the Bible doesn't. Bible is not playing language games. Bible gives us paradoxical statements that we're trying, after the fact, to understand. Right, but does it, because of the translation, create even more confusing? Yeah, so it's even more equivocal in the Bible. So the Bible will say God God makes evil, and the Bible will say God did not make evil. Um, For example, the Bible says God does not tempt anyone to sin, right? Do they use the same language, whatever, whatever... Text that they were originally they in, do they actually use the same root for the same word? Yeah, they do. Mm-hmm. So make and create is the same thing. Right, that's right. <laughs> <laughs> um, my <coughs> I was once speaking, speaking to my uh, twin brother about about evil and about um, the opposite of that, good mm-hmm. and light and darkness. Mm-hmm. And uh, he told me that um, uh, evil is darkness, which is absent of God. So, so like in, in, in yeah. The, so in that's the a, that's a proposed solution. Augustine is the most famous one to say that the evil is just the absence of good. So it's not that God created something that's <coughs> substantial because good has substance. Good is something. Evil is just the absence of the good, or neglecting to do the good, right, or the corruption of the good. Um, like uh, the analogy Augustine gave is, here's an apple, a whole apple, and then there's a bite. The bite in the apple, God, you know, is not something that's created. It's just taking away from what is the whole apple, right? That's helpful too. Augustine, brilliant theologian, he's trying to, it's like this giant ball that's dark, and we're feeling a way around it, and we're all trying to come up with explanations. But this is the bottom line. I'm giving it to you right here. This is the bottom line. That everyone's saying the same thing. We're all coming up with different analogies. Well, my, what my brother was trying to pinpoint was uh, back in uh, Genesis 1, mm-hmm. you know, uh, for God created the heavens and the earth, and the earth was void and without form, and uh, God hovered over the, the waters of the earth, and mm-hmm. he said, let there be light, and there was light. So there was darkness at first. Mm-hmm. Is that darkness evil? No, no. Because, so we're using darkness there as a metaphor. Does that make sense? So so when we associate darkness with sin, that, I mean, that's a metaphor. 
So, so in the creation account, God didn't create evil. He didn't make. He didn't make darkness in the sense that you know, like Voldemort is. <laughs> but let me go on. Okay, let me go on for the sake of time. Um, last objection: Doesn't the Bible say that God wants all people to be saved? Yes, it does. So where are we, Allison? Uh, can I have you read First Timothy two four? God desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of truth. Yeah, it doesn't say God desires elect people to be saved. He says all people, right? Uh, where are we? John, can you read Ezekiel? Have I any pleasure in the death of the wicked, declares the Lord God, and not rather that he should turn from his way and live? Yeah. God says, I want, my desire, my heart is that the wicked repent and live. Right? And so, how do we square this with predestination? And this is also going to cook your noodle. (laughs) We have to make another distinction between um, God's moral will and then his sovereign will. Uh, His moral revealed will, what he tells us what he wants, and his sovereign secret will, which would be um, election and all things that come to pass. So, for example, what's God's moral will? The Ten Commandments. He wants us to obey. Uh, But... That's what he wants. And yet, does this happen? No. So God wills, what? Disobedience. But God allows disobedience, not... Sure, so you want to go back to the splitting the hairs. Yeah. <laughs> um, um, God wants all people to be saved. Right? That's his revealed moral will, but he ordains or he allows he ordains some to eternal damnation. Um, In other words, God wills something that he disapproves of or he doesn't want to happen. He doesn't want this to happen, and yet it is his sovereign will. How does that happen? Well, we see it all over in the Bible. Uh, for the sake of time, let me just read it. Uh, Acts 2.23. Um, uh, we see this particularly in the death of Christ, right? This split, the split personality in God. Um, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hand, hands of lawless men. So here, Peter condemns um, people for crucifying Jesus as evil. In fact, we can say it is the greatest evil humanity has ever conceived to kill to kill the Son of God, and yet it also says it was God's definite plan, it was his, according to his foreknowledge, God ordained it, right? So, he, God wants his Son to live, but he ordained, his sovereign will is that his Son, his Son died. Okay? Um, Isaiah 53, uh, he was oppressed, and he was afflicted, speaking of uh, Christ. Yet it was the will of the of the Lord to crush him. So the father is grieved. He's weeping for the death of his son, and yet it was his will. Uh, uh, where are we? Yeah, it was his will, right? His sovereign, secret will to crush him. He was, although he was exceedingly sorrowful, and so we can distinguish here um, the difference between God's desires and plans. So this is God's desire. Well, let me write this down in different because it's kind of important. God desires, this is what God desires, and this is what God plans. This is what actually happens. Okay? Um, and so, let's look at Matthew twelve fifty. Whoever does the will of my Father. So here, again, we're speaking of will. And again, there's two wills, Okay? God wills, it is the will of my Father, um, whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and sister. So God wants all people to obey, to live righteous and holy lives, and yet it doesn't happen. Right? And so we can distinguish between two kinds of will, the will of desire and the will of, of, of his plans, of his ordination. Right? Um, 
and this is what he wants, this is what is good, this is what is righteous, and this is what actually happens, right? And so sometimes, okay, this is going to really cook you in the middle. Sometimes, God, so here we're going back to the, to the issue of, of hell, right? Sometimes God wills something that he doesn't want to happen. And he also wills something. Oh, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. Sometimes um, God wills something that he doesn't want to happen. That's right. And then God doesn't want something to happen that he wills. Or, am I mixing this up here? Let me read this case. God wills something that doesn't happen. Yeah. He, he, he wills, he wills in the sense that he wants all to be saved, but it doesn't happen. Does that make sense? So you have this very strange, very strange thing. These are both God's wills. This happens, this doesn't happen. This is what God wants, this is what God doesn't want. Yes? I guess the way I always try to make sense of this is that it's impossible to have all those things happen at the same time. Like, you can't create good without having evil. Yes. Well, I don't know. It was like a necessity. No, I'll say, okay, so that's a necessity argument. Mm -hmm. Um, I don't think that's necessarily true. Could not God have created a world in which evil never intruded? Well, so the argument that I've heard is that if he did that, then the good wouldn't have had a choice, and it would just be like robots, basically. If you had no other alternative... No, I don't think so. I mean, Christ... Um, so there's a big debate about Christ too. Could he have fallen? But could Christ be good if evil didn't exist? Yes. Wasn't he not good before the creation of the world? So before the creation of the world, God was good. So creation didn't do anything that helped God in the sense that he was lacking in something. He wasn't lacking in community because he was perfectly happy within the Trinity. He wasn't lacking in glory and he was not lacking in goodness or moral righteousness. But he chose to make people for a reason, right? He did, yes. But he was lacking... So there was something that was there that wasn't there before people were made. Yeah, so we would say it would be out of the overflow of what was already in his fullness. Then how do you explain evil? That's the paradox. Because evil was not necessary. Because, for example, could not... And here's... But even if we acknowledge that evil is necessary for the good, which I don't think is true... Could not God have elected all to be saved? So we all fell in Adam, and then we're all rescued in Christ. Could not God have done that? Why does some have to go to hell? Why does there have to be a hell? Why can't hell be empty except for the demons? We don't know. We don't know. That's right. So God chose some. He, he condemned some. And so... Can I ask, why do we pray for someone's salvation? When it's because we believe in predestination. Because we believe that God is the author of the heart transformation. So when someone doesn't believe, we say, God, do this. Hey, God, that's already determined. That, we're going to address that in the next class. Next class. <laughs> 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 explain it, though. Because, no. you know, like, everybody be saved. Mm-hmm. The short answer is, God not only ordains the ends, but he ordains the means. But we'll talk about that next week. All right, so... It was God's revealed moral will, his desire and his character, that all should be saved, that all should come to saving knowledge of Christ. But according to God's sovereign mercy for his own secret purposes, God only predestines some to salvation. The question that you're naturally going to ask is why? Why only some saved, right? And the answer is we don't know. The Bible doesn't really actually say, but I think we have a hint of it. In Romans 3.25, it says, this was to show God's righteousness. It's talking about our salvation, right? And we forget... See, here in this sense, I think this is part of the answer. It's the desire issue. We think God's only desire is to rescue, which is true. God's desire is to rescue. God's desire is that all should know him. God's desire is that all should flourish. But there's another desire. A second desire, we would, which we would say is the primary desire, is the greater desire, is the higher desire, which is what? The desire for his glory. And so this, this sovereign secret will satisfies his glory. Right? So that when some go to hell, when, when, when people are rescued to heaven, it is to the praise and glory of God's name. And when people suffer an eternity in judgment in hell for rebelling against a righteous and holy God, it is to the glory of his name. Right? And so, um, um, he... <laughs> well, I feel like it's like, you're trying to make an argument, but it just makes God look like schizophrenic. <laughs> That's right. This is the, so people you say know, the two wills of God makes God schizophrenic. 
But God is infinitely think, above us. But do you think is the Calvinism just trying to make... So that's one of the complaints people have against Calvinism. You're trying to logically figure everything out. Actually, in my, I mean, I've, I've really thought about this for a long time, decades at this point. I think Calvinism, the opponents of Calvinism is trying to resolve all the paradoxes. Because Calvinism says paradox. Almost every answer to, to, to the question is paradox. That's right, it's paradox. The, the opponents of Calvinism wants to resolve that paradox. I th- so I think I mean, Calvinism preserves the mystery of scripture. Right, because you know the, the whole thing about our intention, okay, mm-hmm. is to solve it. But what ends up happening is it's all paradox, paradox, paradox. But it's like God is holy, God is complete. I feel like this shouldn't happen. Like, you know, what I'm saying, like, mm-hmm. you will something, you despise something, you should be able to do it. If so, so, I can't so, do so, it. so here's the retort, right? Which is God is infinitely higher than us. So if God is so much greater than us, we are creatures. He's the creator. Can the creature? say, I completely understand the Creator. The Creator is so much greater, so much above us. And so here's my final answer, which is that we know God is good and just. We don't know His ultimate reasons for everything He does, but we must trust Him. It's the Father saying, trust me. You know, I'm good. I'm doing what is right. But we can't understand Him ultimately. And I think, I don't want to believe in a God in which we could say, I created that God. Because... He's a logical extension of our minds. God is so far beyond us. And I hope that part of the results of this class is you feel you feel this wonder at who God is. I was just gonna say, for me, Romans nine, like just the whole chapter of Romans nine just really helped me kind of work this out in my brain. So I don't know if just encourage people to read Romans nine. Yes, Romans nine. We'll actually gonna dip into Romans nine a bit more next week. Yes. So one final question. Um, Piggyback on, on Jeff's thing. Yeah. So you're saying it's possible for us to know good without, without like let, 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 let's say we don't know evil, but we can still recognize good. Yeah, because 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 if if it was the case that evil is necessitated by good, that means Adam didn't really have a choice. If Adam truly had a choice, that means he could have chosen obedience. That means we. That means it could have been that this world was without corruption and evil and sin. So th- so that's necessitated by the choice. Otherwise, God set up Adam. God set Adam up to fall. See, a lot of people say that. Did God set Adam up to fall? No. God did not. Adam had a true free choice. He could have obeyed. He could have... He... So a lot of people say, oh, we would have all fallen. That's not true. Maybe if you were the federal head, Shawin, <laughs> you in the garden, it might have been different. But Adam was Adam was our head, and Adam and Adam failed. Uh, any other questions? All right, let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for this class. <clears throat> and as I prayed uh, at the very beginning, Lord, whatever is not true, whatever doesn't honor you, whatever does not um, do justice to the Scriptures, let it be forgotten, let it fall to the wayside. But whatever is true, whatever is good and holy and beautiful, may it sink into our hearts. May it give voice to our tongues to praise you and worship you. May it fill us with assurance of our salvation. Christ, and we pray. Amen. Thank you, everybody.